Today's episode is sponsored by Newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper archive. Newspapers.com makes it easy to find your family's story. With more than half a billion digitized newspaper pages from the 1690s to today. Search for obituaries, marriage announcements, birth announcements, photos, and more in papers from across the United States, the UK, Canada, and beyond, stretching back three generations. For listeners of this podcast, Newspapers.com is offering 20% off a Publisher Extra subscription. Just use the coupon code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE at checkout. That's code FAMILYTREEMAGAZINE, all one word, for 20% off Publisher Extra. Welcome to the December 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. I'm Lisa Louise Cook. Today, we're going to be taking a look at those who actually witnessed your ancestors' lives. Genealogy blogger Robin Smith is here to provide strategies from her article. It's called Witness Testimony. Then in our Family History Home segment, we'll find out what we should do with our old family photo negatives. The photo detective, Maureen Taylor, will be here to help us with that. And in our Best Websites for Genealogy segment, we're climbing your family tree at Wikitree with founder Chris Witten. Then we'll wrap up the episode and the year at the editor's desk with Family Tree Magazine's editor, Andrew Cook. As always, we have a lot to cover, so let's get to it. First up is Tree Talk. Well, Family Tree Magazine social media editor Rachel Christian has her pulse on what's trending in the world of genealogy, and she's here right now to help us kick off this episode. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me back. Always enjoy starting off each episode with you, and uh, love to hear this month. What have you got your eye on? Well, given that the holidays are coming up, I thought we'd take a moment and talk about some genealogy family history gift ideas, and. It probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody, but if you look at kind of the holiday trends for this year, spending is generally down. People aren't, you know, breaking the bank on gifts this year. So I thought we would just talk about a few ideas for maybe less expensive, more DIY genealogy gifts that your loved ones might just like better. So firstly, one of our favorite ideas at Family Tree when it comes to gifts is creating kind of a a DIY genealogy kit where you bring together different items under a certain theme. So for example, if you put together, you know, a notepad and some pens and paper, new can of bug repellent, some small garden shears, and maybe like a kneeling pad, you have a DIY cemetery research kit to give to your favorite cemetery enthusiast. And you can, you know, make them as big or as small as you want. You can choose to invest in certain items and then Maybe have lower cost items to fill in the rest, but it's an easy alternative to maybe, you know, a website subscription or a DNA test kit, which, you know, the family history lovers in your life might already have. Oh, that's a great idea. Thank you. Yeah. And of course you can have a bunch of different themes too, you know, uh, library research kits, just whatever the family historian in your life loves to do in regards to genealogy. Uh, one other idea, and this is one that I'm hopefully planning to execute this year, is um, if you're aware of any gifting traditions in your family, 
that maybe the newer members haven't experienced, resurrecting those this year. Um, For example, my grandmother, she made stockings for all of her kids and all of her grandkids. And they are a very specific type of stocking. She followed the same pattern. And she would decorate them with patches according to, you know, what that person liked. Different things like mine, for example, has a rocking horse and a little angel. They were very personalized. And she would stitch our names on them in sequence. And she's unfortunately passed away. But I thought that I would resurrect that tradition um, and gift a stocking to my husband, who doesn't have one. So I can give him that and, you know, teach him a little bit more about my grandmother and how much we all loved that tradition growing up. And those are just a few of the ideas. Of course, we've got way more, um, both DIY ideas and gift ideas on familytreemagazine.com. And we'll, of course, have the links in the show notes for those. I really like those ideas. I have to think about what are some of the things that we did when when I was a kid um, and pass those on. It's a great opportunity for those conversations, like you said. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. Well, I think that was a great way to kick off this episode. Thank you so much, Rachel. <laughs> Thanks so much, Lisa. We may not have been around when our ancestors lived, but there were witnesses to the important events in their life. And in her new article for Family Tree Magazine called Witness Testimony, author and genealogist Robin Smith explains how witnesses can help you in your genealogy research. And I'm very happy to say she's here now to tell us more about it. Welcome to the show, Robin. Hi, such a pleasure to be here with you today. I'm so happy to have you Thank here. Thank you for inviting me. Of course, yes. of course, we were just chatting. I think we met years ago at a, at a conference and you have certainly been continuing to be busy in the genealogy world. Uh, you're blogging on reclaiming kin, is that right? Yes, yes. That's been my passion project for more than a decade now. And so that's where I share all the tips and all the things about skill building that I've learned. So the focus is skill building, but also I focus on the special challenges of researching the enslaved as well. And and since Zoom, I actually also uh, offer webinars through that, uh, through Reclaiming Kin as well. So it continues to grow and my audience continues to grow. And it's just a pleasure. Oh, fantastic. I know it's, it's a wonderful community, the genealogy community. And I learned a lot from your article in Family Tree Magazine. And I wanted to chat with you a little bit about that because I think researching witnesses is fascinating. And it's something that maybe people don't always think about. You know, we focus on the names we recognize and not so much on the ones that we don't. I'd love to have you kind of give your your elevator speech, if you will, is why should people be taking the time to research witnesses? So most of us in the genealogy community, eventually we hear about this thing called cluster research. And we, we hear this phrase, the fan club, that genealogist Elizabeth Shone Mills conceived, this friends, associates, and neighbors. And I would consider witnesses and bondsmen in that fan club, in that cluster. And simply put, they can just help us find more family. Uh, that's the benefit of researching the people, these individuals and the records in which, which they find them. We can break through some brick walls and it can also tell us about the community ties and some of the customs in that time and place. So witnesses and bondsmen are always my secret, secret research strategy. And I hope will be yours too. 
Now you mentioned bondsmen, and that might be a new term for folks. You know, we might be used to seeing perhaps uh, an immigration record or a birth record, and we see witness. But bondsmen, explain to us what that is. This is one of those terms in genealogy that has a slightly different meaning historically than it does today. And so by bondsman, we just mean someone who pledges a sum of money as a bond for another. And sometimes in these records, we might uh, see that they're called a surety. You might see that term used. And so you can see the difference between that and a witness is that there's a financial obligation involved. And so you can imagine, I always try to tell people, it's similar to co-signing a loan today. And most of us would probably not co-sign a loan for people that we didn't trust or that we didn't know very well. And so if you can keep that concept in your mind, that's the value and the benefit of researching those witnesses and bondsmen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, gosh, when there's a financial tie, <laughs> there's some kind of relationship there. And I guess if we can <laughs> research them, that might lead us back even to more records of our own ancestor. So absolutely. what kind of records are we going to find witnesses? And even more specifically, this term bondsman, what kind of records are we looking for? So the big ones we think of, of course, marriage bonds. We hear that phrase a lot. So marriage records, almost all deeds are going to have some sort of witness involved, wills. And there are also the other records of probate. So executors and administrators often have to have bonds. If you're going to serve as guardian to someone, typically that person has to have a bond as well. And so those are sort of the big ones. We can also think of court cases, civil court cases, when you're trying to secure someone's appearance uh, at a a future court meeting. And I actually have seen the courts go after that bondsman if that person doesn't show up. So some of these records can get pretty juicy. And of course, I think a lot of us are probably familiar with um, pension, military pension records and Southern claims. So I would consider those witnesses who are going to provide their testimony. They might not be there in person, but you're going to have a body of people involved in those records as well. The only thing that I would caution people to watch out for is sometimes it really is just the county clerk or a local lawyer or local justice of the peace. So it's in researching that witness or that bondsman that you'll find out uh, the relationship, if there is any, to the person of interest that you're, that you're uh, researching. That's a really good point. Good, good kind of warning up front. I'm, I'm wondering, as you're looking at witnesses, do you kind of go after them primarily because you're wondering, are they related? Or is it also about that fan principle where they may not be related, but researching them might actually lead me to more about my own ancestor because of their whatever their relationship was? Do both of those play into the way you approach them? I would say both. I'm actually really excited when I see a witness or a bondsman um, because the curiosity serves you very well in genealogical research. As we know, uh, you know, it's a good thing to be nosy when yeah. you're a genealogist. So I want to know why is that person there? I mean, that's that's the question that I'm trying to answer. And more than a few times it has led me 
to more family that I didn't know about, particularly if that individual had a different surname. Now, another got you is that sometimes they end up in the records with their just their initials, right? So we first got to confirm who that person is uh, before we can, we're ready to say that they're related to our person of interest. So our, there are some sort of cautions that we need, need to be aware of as we're doing this research. But I, I'm just, I, it's another uh, stone to overturn as you're doing your research. And I love it when I see a person listed in a record. I'm just, I'm excited. <laughs> Me too. I, I feel like, oh my gosh, I finally have another avenue that I can pursue, yes. uh, particularly in the yes. walls. So in the article, you kind of help people figure out exactly what the process would be. I mean, you have a, a three-step research process, which I think is great because sometimes you see that name and then you're not sure how to go about it. Walk us through just sure. briefly what that three-step process is. So the first thing that I do when I find a document concerning my ancestor that has a witness or bondsman, the first thing I do is transcribe the document. I want to make sure that we all kind of, you know, are comfortable with the practice of transcribing. But that's going to make sure that you are actually reading every single word in that document. It's going to help you notice all of the details that you might miss if you're just looking at it in this its current format. Um, there are a lot of great free tools available to you use for um, transcribing. There's Genscriber, there's Transcript. And I would also recommend Family Tree's um, cheat sheet on reading old handwriting. So that comes uh, becomes very handy when you're doing this transcription. So the second step is to then do the research. I always say you want to research in a variety of records. And I actually research the person as if they were my ancestor already. So I'm looking in census records and deed records and court records and everything else trying to establish who this person is. And the things that we learn along the way um, are not just that that this person is in this time and place, which is very important to us as genealogists, but it also gives us a hint as to how old the person was. And it also tells us, uh, gives us a hint about their literacy in terms of whether they sign with their mark or whether they sign with a signature. So it's in this second step that you probably uncover that the person uh, is related to your family when you're doing this deep research. The third step is to actually research the laws, because as we know, laws governed everything about the sources that we use in genealogy, and they're going to govern who can serve as a witness and a bondsman, how old that person has to be, and also how many were, were necessary. So we, we need to be aware that these laws are going to differ from state to state or colony or a, a locale and also throughout time. So I look at the published state laws that I can find in databases like Internet Archive and Hottie Trust and um, Google Books, but you can also visit your local library, law library, and your archives um, if you've really got to do some deep digging. So those are the three steps that I recommend. Transcribe the document, research the individuals you find, and make sure that you research the laws. Fantastic advice. And I know you bring many stories to your readers at Reclaiming Kin. Tell us the URL address and what they will find there at your website. Oh, thank you so much. So it's www.reclaimingkin, 
com one word, and I call it a genealogy teaching blog. And what I mean by that is I might start off with something from my family history, but every single post is meant to teach a skill. And so every post there talks about a methodology, a strategy, or a resource. So it's not just about my family history. It's about helping all genealogists to grow their skills and also meet the special challenges of researching the enslaved. So I'd be really happy if your listeners would come to the blog, take a look, sign up for my mailing list, and I'll send you a free PDF of all my favorite research tips. Robin, thank you so much. We'll all look forward to your article, Witness Testimony, in the Family Train Magazine. And um, I look forward to hopefully talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on today, Lisa. In this episode's Family History Home segment, photo detective Maureen Taylor is here to help us learn how to care for photo negatives and why they deserve a place in your collection. Welcome back, Maureen. Thank you, Lisa. Great to be here. I love this topic. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's exciting when we have both the option of not just our photos, but the negatives that go with them. But here's the deal. Photos take a lot of precious storage space as it is. And I know many of us get tempted to kind of throw away the negatives just to make room. Why should we hang on to our photo negatives? It's a great question. Negatives are the first thing tossed. And they shouldn't be. Because if you have the negative, you can always make a really high quality scan of the picture. This becomes particularly important when I'm thinking of photographs from like the 1970s, when you have those snapshots on that sort of plasticky linen quality paper, and it's all blurry and horrible. If you scan the negative, it's sharp. You get a much better quality picture. Yeah, that would be really nice to be able to improve the quality. So uh, maybe we could actually replace some of the ones that are stuck inside those magnetic photo albums. Right. Plus, if you've got the strips of negatives, right? You can then play match a matching game. What do I actually have the pictures of that are on the negative and which ones were never printed? And maybe maybe they're horrible and that's why they weren't printed, but maybe there are some gems in there that never got printed. Or maybe there was a photographer in your family early on and they took like sheet negatives, right? And they just never printed them. Yeah, I actually have a box of that kind of stuff that I got from my grandmother. And it's taken me a while to figure out what actually was printed and put in a book. And what is just negatives that she had this just envelopes and envelopes of negatives. So let's talk about film negatives. Because I think a lot of us will have something on film negative. How do you recommend that we care for and store film negatives? So film negatives, it's interesting. They date all the way back to 1884. There were many different kinds of film negatives. But if you're thinking contemporary film negatives from like, 
you know, our childhood, for instance, then you put them in, if you have strips, like 35 millimeter strips, you'd put them in a polyester sleeve notebook pages, for instance. And if you have your grandmother's sheet negatives, you can buy polyester sleeves that are approximately the same size as those negatives. And that's how you want to store them because they can get scratched. But that said, if you have prints and you have the negatives together, keep them together in the polyester sleeves. So they come in typically an envelope, like there'd be the section with the photos and then there's a a little pocket in front with all the negatives. But we should take those out and go ahead and put those in those special sleeves. Yes, but then keep the negative and the prints near each other so you always know that that's the same role. So, you know, 20 years from now, somebody's not think thinking, oh, I have this sheet of negatives. Where are those prints? <laughs> you want to keep them together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if we have some of those old negatives and we might want to make some prints, I really like the idea of maybe making some new, fresh, sharper prints of some of those old pictures. You say in the article that we can do this ourselves with our own scanner. So tell us about that. Because I know sometimes the scanner will come with a special little insert plate or something. Do we need that? What, what do we need? So you can do that on your flatbed scanner, not an all-in-one machine, you know, copier, fax, printer, those things, not so great. But if you have a flatbed scanner, they do come with oftentimes one of those little trays for you to put your negatives in. Now, number one rule, don't cut the negatives apart. You want the whole strip. <laughs> Some people cut cut them into pieces. You don't need to do that. But even easier, if you have the PhotoMime app, they have a way through the PhotoMime app of actually taking a photograph of those negatives and then converting them to a positive. Wow. Nothing could be easier. Now, you said photo, is it PhotoMime or PhotoMime? It's PhotoMime, P-H-O-T-O-M-Y-N-E. But if you do use your flatbed scanner, you can do something with PhotoMime. And therefore, you don't have to expose your negatives to temperature and humidity changes, um, especially temperature changes from the heat of the scanner. You don't have to fuss with, well, how am I going to reverse them now? PhotoMime does it all for you. So it actually turns it, converts it into um, from negative to positive, it sounds like. It's, It's very cool. It's a real time saver. Now, I don't think you're going to get 1200 DPI with that, which is really a preservation standard, but you have to weigh which is more important, having the really high resolution, maybe you can convert that to a higher resolution later, or just merely having a really good quality scan of your negative for preservation purposes. I mean, you don't want somebody to toss the negatives. I never want anyone to toss the negatives, but Lisa, I never want people to toss their pictures either. <laughs> I don't really I win on these <laughs> I don't really win I... these cases. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. There's just not enough storage space. There's not enough space. No. I like the idea of being able to kind of convert the most and then you could really take a look at them and maybe then you pick the one or two you want to do on your flatbed and really make it a nice larger size, something that you can print and maybe even frame. That's right. That's right. Exactly. It's a process. Well, you mentioned also in the article that there's such a thing called glass negatives. Now, I'm not even sure I've ever seen one of these. So 
What are they? And do they require special attention? Oh, my goodness. You would not believe how many glass negatives there are out there floating around in the world in basements and you know, we call them yard sales here in the New England, yard sales, antique marts. I mean, there's a whole glass negative collector network on Facebook, for instance. So there are two types of glass negatives. There are the early glass negatives, which are on thicker glass, and the photographer actually coated the chemicals on the glass surface themselves. Then there are the manufactured glass negatives, so you could buy them by the box. And I actually, in my camera collection have a early 1900s camera that actually took glass negatives. It has a little backing that we pop the negative in to take a picture. But what happens with glass? Glass breaks. So you have to be particularly careful uh, both handling them so you don't cut yourself, but also handling them so you don't drop them. The problem with glass negatives is sometimes the image, which is called the emulsion, will flake away from the negative. So you have to be extra careful. So what do you do with these? If Gaylord.com sells special boxes that actually have a photo safe sort of foam insert so you can store your glass negatives upright. A lot of these glass negatives, no one knows where the prints are or if they were ever printed. Again, the photographer has the camera and I have proof. I think it's a 1900 camera. And did they actually have a dark room in their house to print those negatives? Did they think they were going to eventually print them? We don't know. I can tell you the worst kind of negative to have in your collection. Disc mm-hmm. film, Lisa. Disc, disc film. Do you remember disc film? Yeah. When was that? Oh. When was that? It was the shortest lived format. Here it is. Disc film was manufactured after 1973. But it only was around for a little bit, and they're teeny, tiny little negatives. So it was a special camera. You pop the disc in. What could go wrong? takes terrible picture quality, terrible picture quality. And now you have them, and you can't do much with them. Uh, There is one company, and it's in the article, they they have on their website, we can print from disc film. (laughs) I don't know if it's worth it. It reminds me of those discs we used to put in the um, the viewers, you know, the viewer you put up to your um, face when you're a kid. and The Viewmasters. Viewmaster, yeah. Those are better quality. Those are better quality. <laughs> That's not saying a lot. That's not saying a lot. <laughs> wow. Well, you, you do oh, say a goodness. lot about negatives and photos in your article. It's called History in Reverse which I think makes a lot of sense for negatives. It's in the January, February 2023 issue of Amateur Magazine. I encourage everybody listening, go check it out. If you've got negatives in your collection, this is going to be a a wonderful reference guide for you. And Maureen, tell folks uh, where they can find you online to keep in touch with you. Sure enough. Anyone has any questions about the negatives in their collection, and I'm sure you do, uh, you can reach me on all social platforms as Photo Detective. And you can email me at photodetective at maureentaylor.com. Love to hear from you. Thank you, Lisa. Wonderful. Okay, I promise I won't throw my negatives away. I'm going to just go start organizing them now. Thank you. Please. (laughs) In this episode's segment of the best websites for genealogy, we are going to be talking about wikitree.com. 
And here to tell us more about it is the founder and president of WikiTree, Chris Witten. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Lisa. I appreciate you having me here. I'm so glad to have you here today as well. We are always interested in those websites that are going to help us build out our family tree, learn more about our family history. And WikiTree has been doing that for several years. Tell people about what you do at WikiTree. 14 years now. It's actually been around 14 years. Uh, So WikiTree is completely free. It's open to everybody. Um, It's a community, like really more than a website. It's a genealogy community. So it's it's all for collaboration. We're growing a single family tree. You know, we like to say it's not your tree or my tree. It's our tree. It's a tree we all share. Um, So it's sort of like, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the family search tree. Uh, It's somewhat like that. There's also Jeannie and a few others around the world that are doing this single family tree idea where everybody collaborates in one environment. Uh, What sets WikiTree apart, I think, um, is really that we are a community. It's very much um, a supportive group. We place a big emphasis on sourcing. So we're the most accurate single family tree available. And we have a lot of fun. That sounds terrific. And I know that for many people, you know, it makes them happy when they hear that there is that emphasis on sourcing. Uh, Of course, with family trees, we worry about if we get connected with a tree that isn't correct, then we have more problems than we started with. Tell us a little bit more about that. What are some of the mechanisms on your website that help and facilitate the sourcing of the information that's going into the trees? Well, first and foremost, we ask that every um, piece of information that somebody puts on WikiTree has a source, you know. So, so even if you're saying, you know, this is this is from my aunt Sally, you know, or, or this is the the family tree that was handed down to me, you have to at least say where it came from, and then that gives people a starting point for the collaboration. So that if somebody else then comes along and says, well, you know what, I have different information, and you know, what's your source? What's your source? And you can compare and come to a conclusion. So that's interesting. That does sound a bit like the family search tree in terms of it being one tree. Um, Does that create any other challenges? What if people disagree about the information that they're putting on? Oh, yeah. People disagree all the time. I mean, that's um, human beings get together and and try to work together and they will argue and have problems. Um, You know, probably one of the most really special things about WikiTree is this culture that we've developed over the years. You know, because we've been around 14 years and it's very much community-based. Like, I don't know if I mentioned it's totally free, free for everybody. Um, And we don't have any full-time employees. You know, this isn't run by this big team of people. It's almost entirely volunteer-based. You know, the team we have is just part-time and and there to support the community. So there is a whole set of policies and procedures that's developed over the years from the ground up uh, to work out problems like this. That's really unique and it sounds very special. How did you decide from the beginning that free was going to be the price? And how do you, you know, keep the lights on when you do it free? What's the model there? It it has been challenging at times, but uh, for the past, let's see, the first seven years, seven years I did this uh, and it was a struggle and uh, we 
quite honestly lost money. But we figured out the, we had to reach a point where we're getting enough visitors that we can pay for ourselves with advertising. And so we now get about a million and a half visitors a month. And so we do have the big advertisers. Like if you come on Wikitree, you'll see my heritage, ancestry ads, uh, ads for DNA tests. But if you sign our honor code, it, you know, if you register as a member and sign our honor code, the ads essentially disappear. So members don't even see ads. And non-members, the ads they see are not as offensive as what you see in a lot of places out there on the internet. So really, it's just a balance that we had to reach, and we reached it years ago. So now it's quite comfortable where the community you know, doesn't even have to see the ads, and it's all free for everybody. Oh, that's great to know. Um, so I imagine you do get lots of people who are first-time visitors. You're popping up perhaps in Google search results. Uh, what do you recommend is the best way to get engaged with the website? Um, do you do you jump right in? Just I know you get the free account. What, what do we do next? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, probably the biggest complaint about Wikitree is that it can be overwhelming. You know, because it's uh, a very large community and it's evolved over a long time. It, it's very, you know, elaborate. Like there are very, you know, just th- thousands of little corners of Wikitree where you have people, you know, collaborating on their, you know. Mayflower ancestors over here or, you know, working on translating, you know, obscure Latin documents over here. Um, There are a lot of independent developers who have created tools that work with Wikitree. And so some of those can be, you know, a little bit complicated and intimidating. So we try to keep it all simple, but, but we do realize that it can be a bit much for the new user. So, so really the first thing you do is you just register, just log in, and you get that free guest account. And if you want to, if you want to put something on your profile, you upgrade that to what we call a family member account. And that's just, you know, one more step. A lot of us have family member accounts for our family members. So uh, the third step is to sign that honor code that I mentioned before. And that's just these 10 basic uh, principles. You know, things like saying we cite sources. That's number one. Um, you know, we collaborate. We, you know, we work together, we give credit when credit is due, we respect copyrights, we respect privacy. So it's this very simple, you know, 10-point honor code. You read it in two minutes. And as long as you agree with that, you say yes, and then you move forward to the next step. And if you want help, when you want help, it's there. You know, there's this really vibrant community in the discussion forum there's live online chat. There are video chats you can do. There are one-on-one personal mentors you can get. Uh, there are training programs in various projects. So as involved as you want to be in whatever areas you want to be involved in, you can. Uh, I just recommend taking it one step at a time and trying not to get overwhelmed. All right. Well, it's wikitree.com. And Chris Witten, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Lisa. Well, it's time to wrap up this episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast. And let's head over to the editor's desk to the editor of Family Tree Magazine, Andrew Cook. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Lisa. Well, we've had a jam-packed episode and we're wrapping up a whole year. Would love to hear what's on your mind this time of year. Well, it has been a big year looking sort of at the year in review and 
when I came on the December episode last year, I said it was going to be a year of big record releases, and it definitely turned out to be. So we knew that the 1921 census of England and Wales was going to be released in January via Find My Past, and it certainly was. And here on this side of the pond, we had the 1950 U.S. federal census in April. And one of the big highlights of that collection, in addition to being a once in a decade kind of event, was that it launched for the first time, the the U.S. Census launched with a preliminary AI-generated index that made it so that um, you could search names immediately upon the census's release instead of waiting for individual websites to create their own indexes or waiting for volunteers to manually crawl through them. So that was obviously a big boon for researchers and a really great story to follow throughout the year as people keep finding things out about their ancestors from that new document. Yeah, I think the whole review of that isn't quite finished yet either, which we kind of expected to to see at this point. Yeah, it there's a little bit of give and take too. You never know how well these are the artificial intelligence is going to work. Right. We talked earlier on a previous episode about the Beyond 2022 project. That was exciting to see. Yeah, that's been a few years in the making. If you listen to that episode, of course, you'll know that the public record office in Dublin burned down during some the Civil War in 1922. So this project sought to virtually recreate these records and make them available to the public, and that launched earlier this year as well. So that's a great resource for anyone who has Irish genealogy, uh, particularly for whom they had lost those records. In addition, another sort of brick wall for people had been the infamous New York City Vital Records, which for a long time were, were pretty heavily restricted by privacy records. Well, uh, in a surprise move, the New York City Municipal Archives created this vital records project, and there are now 10 million birth, marriage, and death records available through that site. And I'll have links to these and all the other projects that I'm talking about in the show notes. Terrific. And something that is coming up, well, soon in the new year of 2023 is going to be Roots Tech. And we're seeing a shift there too, right? Yes. Earlier this year, the Roots Tech conference that usually takes place in Salt Lake City was virtual again. And so attendees had access to hundreds of new videos that were added to their on-demand library. We, of course, exhibited again. And it was a great opportunity to learn more about genealogy and pick up different research strategies. And more recently, Roots Tech announced that their 2023 conference will once again be in person in Salt Lake City, which is so great. Get to see everybody again. We'll be there if you want to come and say hi at our booth. But if you're not able to attend, they announced that the conference will be both virtual and in person. So you sort of get the best of both worlds. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's kind of neat that they're going to have both and people who can't make it there in person will get a chance to continue with the videos. Yeah, and they have they discounted the registration fees yes. this year. So it'll hopefully open that up for more people to be able to join us. Exactly. Now, what else can people be watching on their screens? Yes, speaking of uh, things to watch and things to watch online, we had some big genealogy TV shows return this year. After multiple years in hiatus, Who Do You Think You Are? came back to television, which was very exciting. And of course, we had a new season of PBS is Finding Your Roots, as well as BYU TV's Relative Race. So no shortage of TV shows for genealogists to tune into this year. 
That's for sure. I, I didn't expect to see Who Do You Think You Are come back. So that was kind of nice to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got to wrap things up with technology and the genealogy mm-hmm. sites. What did you see along those lines? And what do you think you're going to see in the next year? Well, the big genealogy websites always are pushing out new and exciting tools and record releases. And this year, of course, was no exception. So here are sort of the quick hits. Ancestry DNA announced a couple new DNA tools throughout the year. One was its side view technology, which allows uh, for phasing, essentially, which is separating your DNA from your maternal and paternal sides. And recently, they announced that they are actually able to label which sides are maternal and which are paternal. Previously, the side view was just able to tell you that one was one and one was the other. They couldn't tell you which came from which parent. And Ancestry also announced a long-anticipated chromosome painter to allow you to dig in more deeply how you share DNA with your relatives. In addition, on the photo side of things, Ancestry released new photo editing, colorization, and enhancement tools through a partnership with PhotoMine, which is a great kind of asset there for those of you who are uploading family photos through that site. Not to be outdone, MyHeritage released Live Story, which adds audio storytelling elements to the AI-generated picture movements that kind of went viral last year when it was called Deep Story. And in addition to that, MyHeritage is also partnering with Jewish Den to release some records. And sort of to round out the big genealogy websites, Find My Past added its long-anticipated tree search functionality, which allows its users to search other users' family trees on the site. Yeah, that was a big update and kind of exciting to see. I know that they thought about it. They were they took their time and, and were very thoughtful about put, bringing it forward. So many big innovations this year. Okay, what well, you're right. A lot came to fruition in 2022, and we will have links to lots of these things in our show notes. It's always great to talk with you. It's been a terrific year, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you at Roots Tech in 2023. Yes, how great will that be? Maybe we'll see some listeners too. Absolutely. See ya. Thanks, Lisa. Well, that wraps up our December 2022 episode of the Family Tree Magazine podcast, the show from America's number one genealogy magazine. Now, the Family Tree team, again, wants your thoughts on our podcast. So please take a moment to complete our short survey, which you can find at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash survey. We're really looking forward to hearing from you. This is your show. As always, I'll have links on the show notes webpage for this episode to everything that we talked about today. You can find the show notes at FamilyTreeMagazine.com slash podcast. Thanks again for joining me today. I'm Lisa Louise Cook, and you can visit me at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll find links to the Genealogy Gems podcast and Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. And until next time, have fun climbing your family tree.